is your word that is expressed. Father God, I pray you use my limited, minimal abilities for your glory and that your word penetrate our hearts today and that it is your word that speaks to us. In Jesus' name. Reading out of Hebrews, Hebrews is a fascinating book of the Bible. If you've never had a chance to study it or really get into it, we don't know who wrote it. It's a very contrary. If you go into a Bible study with some very deep scholarly folks and you say, well, I know who wrote the book of Hebrews, chaos ensues. Okay, it's fun. Please don't do that. All right. uh, most of, for most of church history, it was attributed to the Apostle Paul. In fact, it wasn't even going to be included in the biblical canon at first because there's no authorship evident within the book itself. But many of the early church fathers concluded it was the Apostle Paul who must have wrote it, or at least someone close to Paul, which is kind of funny because modern scholars today, they don't think it was Paul at all. In fact, the most current theory, and, and literally there are new theories every 50 years about who wrote Hebrews. That's one reason it's such a fascinating book. There's always something else to learn or, or pick at and find. And, and so modern scholars now believe that it possibly was a sermon of Paul's and Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, might have been just taking sermon notes and he copied this down and from his sermon notes wrote what we call the epistle to the Hebrews. There have been other theories throughout the years, if it was Apollos or Titus or somebody, but it was always somebody close to Paul. We see that even in our text today, the metaphors the writer uses, the language that he uses is very Pauline in essence, but it wasn't, well, at least we don't think it wasn't Paul. So if I slip up this morning, please show a little grace. If I say, well, the apostle Paul goes on to say in Hebrews, Okay, that's just a, a, a slip. I don't know that Paul wrote it, and I'm just saying that out of habit from preaching the other epistles, okay? But it, the, the whole book is about the suffering of the Christian. It is written to a church that is suffering. Now, we have been in this entire series for about eight weeks now, going through the topic of joy, and you might be sitting there going, well, this is a real fun way to start the new year, Pastor Jeff, joy and suffering, you must really have a negative outlook for 2023. No, that's not it at all. The fact is there is a great joy to be had in our suffering as Christians. When we are in Christ, when we are truly in Christ, suffering drives the Christian to a deeper joy in Christ. In fact, that's the one thing I hope you take away this morning. We're going to go verse by verse through this passage and we're going to dissect it a little as we go. But the one thing I hope you take home this morning with you is suffering drives the Christian into a deeper joy in Christ. Now we begin reading in the passage, verse 32. It says, But remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and afflictions, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you also showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted with joy the seizure of your possessions, knowing that you have for yourselves a better and lasting possession. Therefore, <clears throat> therefore, do not throw away that confidence of yours, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. 
But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering, I'm sorry, to the preserving of the soul. Now we read this, and we know that there's something very much taken for granted here, and that is that these people are hurting. These people are suffering. Now there are those in Christianity, even today, that will say that when you come to Christ, life gets easier. That, that everything gets better. Now, it's true that things get better, but it's not true that everything gets easier. Because when you come to Christ, it's better because now you have someone who goes through the suffering with you. But it does not guarantee that because you're a Christian, life is going to be all sunshines, daisies, and rob- rainbows, and puppy dogs, and all those fun things. Anybody who sells that to you has sold you a lie. Anybody who told you come to Jesus and life is all pancakes and ice cream just had food on their mind. They didn't have your spiritual well-being. No, suffering is, in fact, a part of the Christian life. And as we study Scripture, there are actually five things, when we really look at it, there are five avenues from which suffering comes. If you're taking notes, you may want to write these down. This could be a whole sermon of its own at some point. But suffering typically comes from consequences of our own decisions. You look at Esau in the Old Testament. Esau traded his birthright for a bowl of soup right? And he gets angry about it later. He says, my brother's already taken my birthright. Now he's taken my blood. He's mad about that. Well, that's a consequence of his own foolish decision. And, you know, there's an old saying, life is hard. It's even harder if you're stupid. That's a joke. You can laugh at that. That's okay. That's not to say that you're stupid, but that is to say that we do often, if we're honest and myself included, we make stupid decisions like possibly sharing that old saying, right? Nobody laughed at that like I thought they would. That's okay. But there are consequences to our decisions. There are people that I've met in my life who smoke for 50 years and they get cancer and they say, God, why did I get cancer? What, what, do you hate me so much? Look, you, that is a consequence of your choice. But I know so-and-so who smoked for 50 years and didn't get cancer. Okay. But you knew there's even a big label on the on the uh, packet of cigarettes you bought that says, Surgeon General's warning, you might get cancer, right? So there are people who do this. They, they get angry at God, but it is usually, sometimes, many times, consequences of their own actions. Another thing we have to understand as Christians is that there are consequences of the spiritual warfare we engage in whenever we become a part of Christ's family. Paul makes this very clear in the book of Ephesus, uh, Ephesians, his letter to the church at Ephesus. Chapter 6, he says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the forces of darkness. He's talking about spiritual warfare. There is an enemy who wants to destroy you. He's not omnipresent. We have to be very careful to not go looking for a demon under every bush, but that does not mean that there's not a demon under some bushes, Okay. So there are consequences to the spiritual battle in which we, we engage every day as we put on the armor of God, as we exist in Christ. Thirdly, there are also consequences of other people's actions. We see this in the life of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts when the Jews turn him over to the Romans, ultimately to have him executed in Rome. These, they, they made their choices. One of the best modern examples we can give is September 11th, 2001. How many of you, many of you, uh, probably my age and a little older, you remember where you were, what you were doing exactly in that moment. And the following Sunday, churches were packed. And overnight, pastors became experts on Islam and things like that. But you know what people wanted to know is why did this happen? 
Why did God allow this to happen? And if I can answer that for you this morning, God loves, that's why it happened. Because God loves us enough to give us free will and not strip us of that, making us obedient automaton android type of things. He gives us the option to love him back. He gives us the option to make choices. And because he loves us enough, sometimes the love he shows others lets, allows them to operate in their free will and their free will impacts our lives. So that's another reason why sometimes we suffer. The fourth is sometimes there's just a trial or a test or God is trying to build something in us. We see this in the book of James whenever he talks about you, you count it all joy, my brothers, when you suffer trials of various kinds because God's building up in you perseverance. We'll read that later as we go. And finally, this is the most deep, most uh, prophetic, most deeply theological reason why bad things sometimes happen to people. If you're, if you're ready to write this down, I don't know. And, and you don't know. And we will not know this side of the grave. But we trust in him. Job, if you read Job, Job is never told he goes through so much misery. If you've read that book in the Bible, he goes through so much misery. And at the end, he just says, you know what? I'm going to worship. I don't know why I went through these things. He doesn't know about the conversation that we know about that took place in the, in the heavenly courts and things like that. But he still, he suffers and he doesn't know. And he comes out victorious on the other end. And that is many times, that is the life of the Christian. We may not be experiencing spiritual warfare. We may not be facing consequences of our free will or someone else's. And it may not be a test. It may just be something we don't know. But how we react to that matters. And when we suffer as a Christian, it should drive us into a deeper joy in Christ. Now we look at our text this morning, very specifically, and I want to say this too about uh, the things we don't know. It's okay to not know these things. Sometimes we obsess over them and we let that ruin our spirituality, that, that ruins our relationship with Christ. But Deuteronomy 29, 29, if you ever get a chance, look that verse up. It says the secret things belong to the, to the Lord. There are things I have to trust that he knows what he's doing, and I don't. That's why I said last week, he is God, I am not. And we have to learn to be okay with that if we're going to be obedient Christians. Amen? Amen. All right, you're still awake. Good. We haven't lost you yet. All right, reading in our text, verse 32. But remember, we're going to stop right there. But if you've been coming on Wednesday nights, you know that is one of those transition words. There's a shifting of gears. I like to do this like I know I'm shifting something. I'm probably putting us right into fourth gear from first and crashing, but killing the clutch. Anyway, it, it tells us we need to look back. We need to understand what the author has been saying. And so we look back just a little bit above our page. We know the overall theme of Hebrews is about suffering, but what has the writer been saying so far? Well, we go back up to verse 23. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, we suffer together. If you're suffering, if you're hurting, one of the worst things you can do is isolate yourself. 
One of the worst things you can do is separate yourself from your church, from your church body, because we exist to build up one another, to encourage one another, to grow one another. If you remember, I preached a message on that text years ago, and this consider how to stimulate one another, that literally means how we must irritate one another towards growth. How you irritate a hair follicle to, to stimulate growth. That's, that's what he's meaning. And so this morning, if you would please just humor me, look at the person next to you and just say, thank you for irritating me this morning. Yeah. yeah. How many of you wives, please don't be too quick to raise your hand. How many of you, yeah, you've been irritated this morning? Right. No, nobody's bold. All right. Hey, well, one guy, thank you. It was nice knowing you, Tim, Susan. <laughs> Praise God, that's awesome. But the writer goes on, he says, he, he begins to warn about willful sin. When we are in Christ, when we say to God, in a sense, what he goes on to in, in verses 26 to 31, is, is when we are saying, Jesus, I love you, but I love my sin more, and I want to choose that. When we willfully abandon Christ in the moment and we bring judgment upon ourselves because we are habitually, continually enjoying our sin. In fact, the last verse right before our text begins says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In other words, it should really worry the Christian who continually abuses God's grace, who continually seeks to pleasure them their own fleshly desires versus bringing honor and glory to God. He says, but remember, and the word remember isn't just, oh, think back fondly to those wonderful times. Do you remember? Get your scrapbook out and, and look at that. That's, that's not what he's saying here. In some translations, it says recall. And in, sense, in a sense, what he's saying is in your mind, relive those moments when you were first brought into Christ, when you first became a Christian, in those moments, go back to those. Whenever you suffered tribulation, whenever your family rejected you, whenever your coworkers abandoned you, whenever people heard you were a Jesus freak, Bible-thumping weirdo, and they were like, no, I don't want anything to do with that kook. Go back and think about those days because you made it through them. You suffered but you made it through. And that's what he goes on to say. When after being enlightened, those former days, those earlier days, when you were first enlightened, and the word he uses there is photosthentis, and if you know your junior high science class, you've heard a word very similar to that, which has the same root Greek words. It's photosynthesis. It's the process in which a plant receives light and begins to grow and produce fruit. Well, that sounds really familiar to a Christian life, to the, to the very words of Christ. In fact, the word photosthentis means to receive light. Well, remember when you were first enlightened, when you first heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it began to grow you and produce fruit in you. Now, what's fascinating, I said Hebrews is a fascinating book. It was written around 60 to 70 A.D., this was written during a time when the church was facing severe persecution. Not the, it wasn't the height of Roman persecution, but it was climbing. It was before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, but it was also after the gospels of Mark, Matthew, and Luke had begun to circulate. And so they've likely heard the parable of the sower that Jesus gave. When seed is scattered and, and depending on the circumstances around it, did it produce fruit? 
Did it grow? We see this in Mark 4, uh, specifically verses 3 through 8. There, were seed, there was seed that was scattered on the road, and the birds came and ate it up. And who does Jesus say that is? It's the devil. It's the enemy that comes and, and snatches away their salvation, that he comes. And whatever spiritual warfare happens, it, it erodes their Christianity. Well, that sounds like something I already mentioned, right? And the next thing is seed that falls on rocky ground and it sprang up quick but had no roots. So when the sun comes up, it withers. This is, this is the Christian who gets excited. I, they get saved and they, they're so happy in church. We have to be so careful with that. I said, if you remember the Mark series in, in that message on the parable of the sower, we have to be very careful with such Christians because they don't feel the weight of their sin. They feel the joy of Christ, and that's good. We should feel that. But more than anything, a new convert should feel the weight of their, and the conviction of their sin. In fact, the more mature a Christian becomes, I've heard it said, and I think it's accurate, the more mature a Christian becomes, the less they may sin, but the heavier the weight of conviction is upon them. And so when a new believer comes to Christ and they're excited and they're happy, we have to be very careful to help them make sure we're establishing good roots or we, we might lose them the first time things happen to them, the first time consequences of their new conversion settle in, then they lose their faith. In fact, these are the Christians who say, I've tried Jesus, I've tried church, and it didn't work. Well, it didn't work because we failed them in putting down roots. The, others, the other seed that falls among the thorns, and when it comes up, and, and it, the, the thorns choke them to death. And this is other people's free will. This is the stress of life. These are the things that, that come in and affect their Christianity, and it robs them of their joy. It robs them of their confidence in Christ. And finally, in the parable of the sower, Jesus said, Yet other seeds fall into good soil, and they grew up yielding a very productive crop. These are those who received photosynthesis. They received light, and they began to grow and bear fruit. And the writer of Hebrews, he says, But remember these earlier days when after being enlightened, you endured. You made it. Yes, people thought you were different. People saw that something had changed in your life and, and some of them didn't like it. Maybe you lost friends. Maybe you, you had family abandon you and those things, but you endured. And he says you endured a great conflict of sufferings. This word conflict, athleson is the Greek word. It's where we get the word athlete. It's the only time, I believe it's the only time it's used here in the New Testament and he's saying, you endured a great contest of sufferings, a great conflict, a great uh, challenge of suffering, and you overcame it. You endured, you persevered, you made it. You were able to have victory in those earlier days. So don't let your current trials weigh you down and beat you. Don't let them win the contest this time either. That's the implication there. And we see that as we go on. He says, partly by being made a public spectacle, the literal meaning of that phrase, by the way, is you were made a public theater. You were the theatrics of the town. In fact, whenever these people probably uh, first gave their heart to Christ, when they began to convert to Christianity, they were dragged out into the streets and publicly humiliated. He said they were made a public spectacle through reproaches and afflictions. And that is actually 
public disgraces and anguish and tribulation. They were shamed. They were brought out before the whole city and everyone saw them and they were shamed because now in many Greek cities, this would have been the case, they were atheists. They only believed in one God. They didn't believe in many. So they were now ridiculed for this. If you go back in church history, you see there were quite a few crazy rumors that were spread about early Christians. They believed we were cannibals because we were told to eat the body of Christ. It sounds kind of weird from the outside looking in, right? But that's just some of the early disgraces they suffered. The rumors and the, the stuff that was said about early Christians, their love feasts which we would call the Lord's Supper. You know, you can imagine what kind of things circulated about those. But they suffered these things. They endured through the public shaming. They endured through the theatrics. And even partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. They empathized with other Christians who were hurting, who were suffering. How many times in our suffering do we do the same thing? You know, I don't know about you, but I know I've been in many prayer circles and and prayer meetings and church services and Sunday school classes. And when someone's suffering, what do we typically like to do? Bring up our suffering. Not Not to share in their suffering, but to almost compete. You think you've got it hard. Man, you should have my arthritis. Right? Or, or my, it's like the scene from Grumpy Old Men when they keep talking about all the health issues they've had over the years in the middle of the pharmacy, and it gets really weird. And, and, it, and sometimes we do that ourselves. Instead, what Paul tells the church in Romans twelve fifteen is rejoice with those who rejoice. And we have no problem with that. It's one reason we love to hear praise reports, right? We want to rejoice together. We want to worship God together. We want to thank God for what he's done in your life. But We even fail whenever we are told to weep with those who weep by being of the same mind toward one another, not being haughty in mind, but associating with the humble. Do not be wise in your own mind. Weeping with those who weep, that's the hard thing, relating to the others who are so treated. In fact, if you remember a couple of years ago, there was a pastor in Canada who kept having church service and he kept getting arrested for it. And many times Christians didn't want to weep with him and his wife. I actually saw the footage the day he was arrested in his home and his wife and kids were asking why, why, why. They'd followed government mandates. They'd done everything they could. But they'd even gone out to a field, separated one another, and still had church. But that wasn't enough. He got arrested. And you know what the response was from, from many Christians? I saw it all over social media. Well, he should have known better. Who does he think he is? What does he think he's really doing here? I don't know. Maybe he's not forsaking our own assembling together as some are in the habit of doing at that time. No, instead we should have been weeping with him, praying for him. I think of Andrew Brunson, the pastor from South Dakota, was taken into custody in in Turkey. And and that's something that goes on. uh, The writer goes on to talk about, and I'll get to in a second, but he He was over in Turkey. One of my friends from college, a good friend of mine, was a part of his church. I messaged her. I said, hey, is there anything we can do for you? Can we pray for you? It was before he got released. Just, we're in in chaos right now, Jeff. We've lost our pastor. And many people didn't even know what was happening. Do we share with those who are so treated? 
Paul actually brags on churches that do this. In Philippians 4, 14, he says, Nevertheless, you've done well to fellowship with me in my affliction. In other words, you identified with my hurt. You knew I was a prisoner. You knew I was in chains. And it was as though you were suffering alongside of me. He tells the First Thessalonian, First Thessalonian church, they were all Thessalonian churches. They didn't have like First Baptist like we have. It wasn't First Thessalonian church and Second Thessalonians. They were the same one. I don't know why I said that. Anyway, in First Thessalonians, Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, and he says, You brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you also suffered the same things at the hand of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. You see, we sympathize. This is the reason we sympathize with those who are hurting, because were it not for the grace of God, it would be us in their place. It could just as easily come to America as it happens in China, as it happened in Soviet Russia, and so forth. He goes on, he says, For you also showed sympathy to the prisoners. Now this is, I want to be very clear here, the prisoners they're showing sympathy to are Christians who are arrested. It's not the kidnappers and the murderers of the day. And that's not to say, someone might hear me say this and say, well, Pastor Jeff doesn't like prison ministry. That is not what I'm saying. I believe very firmly in, in prison ministry. They need to hear the gospel as much as anyone. But the church's first priority is praying for those Christians who have been arrested and are suffering in prison as Christians. He says, you also showed sympathy to the prisoners that's what we are to do. Show sympathy to the Andrew Brunsons, the pastor in Canada, things like that. Not judging them, not trying to find fault with them, but encouraging them and rejoice and praying for their families. I remember hearing Brunson after he got out of jail in Turkey and uh, the current president at the time got him into the United States. And, and I remember hearing an interview with him and he said the one thing, the one thing he knew got him through prison got him through that in the crowded rooms he was forced to stay in and, and all the torture and things. He said, the one thing that got me through was knowing that there were churches in America who were praying for me. That there were those who knew what I was going through and prayed on my behalf. He said, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, you accepted with joy the seizure of your possessions, knowing that you have for yourselves a better and lasting possession. Now, I have heard this used and misused and twisted over the years, and I want to clarify something. These people were not standing in their front yard like they were having some kind of free-for-all yard sale and saying, yeah, please come and take my grandma's pearls. Come and take my inheritance. Um, yes, please, please hit my dog. That's okay. You know, It wasn't like that. It wasn't something, they weren't saying, please come and take this. I'm, I'm, with joy, I'm letting you have all my nice stuff. That's not what they were doing. You see, in first century Rome, if you were arrested, while you were sitting in jail, the authorities could come and take your land. They could come and take your home. They could loot your home. You could, come, you could be released a few days later and find your family has had to move in with the, the rest of your other, your extended family because you don't have a place to put them anymore. How many of you think about that? If, if that was you, would you, if you were arrested, if you had to go away for a few days and when you got out, you found out, uh, I don't have anything, could say, okay, well, I still have Christ. I still have joy. That's what they were doing. That's what they were able to do. And the difference between a Christian who has nice things, and it's not wrong to have nice things. It's not a shame to have a nice car. I have the nicest car in, in Lisbon, by the way. 
Some of you are laughing because you've seen it. Someday I'll put the other hubcaps on the tires. Anyway, it's not a shame. It's not wrong to have nice things. But when the nice things have you, they become a treasure. When your heart is on those things, you cannot lose them and still say, I have joy in Christ. But they were able to do that. They would come out of jail and they would say, I have a better and lasting possession. And we know what that is. That it's Christ. That it's eternity with him. And the difference is one word, perspective. Did I have these things or was I living my life for those things? That's why Jesus says very clearly, don't store up for yourself treasures in heavens. He doesn't say you can't have nice things. But he says, don't store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven that where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So you have to ask then, where is my heart? Because in your suffering, you find out very quickly where your heart is and that is where your joy resides. He goes on, he says, Therefore, do not throw away that confidence of yours, which has a great reward. This word throw away is the Greek apopoleti, and it means to cast off or disregard or just toss it aside. Now, if you remember the very first message in this entire series, I talked about the joy of hope. And, and it began, I said, you cannot lose your joy. No one can take it from you, but you can exchange it. You can give it away. You can throw it aside. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is that you are getting rid of it. Don't cast it aside. Don't give it away. Don't lose it. And he's talking about your confidence, but the confidence is parisima. That's the Greek word. It means your boldness, your openness, your public confession. In other words, your testimony. And we have joy in our testimony, right? That is, that is who we are in Christ. That is our, our story, that's how we were taken out of the mire, how we were taken out of our sinful life and made new in Christ. And whenever we have that, there's great joy in our testimony. And the writer is saying, don't throw that away. Don't give up your joy. Don't give up your confidence. Because it has a great reward. He goes on, he says, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. And well, 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 I said we have five reasons why we suffer. Herein we see the core purpose for all suffering. In fact, if you go to James 1, 2, 2 and 3, it makes it very clear. He says, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance. And let perseverance have its perfect work, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It is always meant, suffering is always happening to drive us to a deeper joy in Christ Jesus. To strengthen us, to equip us, to grow us. In fact, if you were to take verse 36 here and streamline it into just the most important parts of the phrase, the, of the verse, it's you have need of endurance so that you may receive the promise. You have need of endurance. Whenever you're suffering, it's okay to say, you know what, God, I still have needs. I need to endure first and foremost. I need to persevere. I need to make it so that when, not if, 
Because if you are in Christ and you are getting deeper in him and you are clinging to him, he will not fail you. When, when you have done the will of God. And we have to ask, well, what is the will of God? Well, he tells us later in Hebrews 13, he says that uh, the grace, uh, the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, our Lord Jesus, may he equip you in every good thing to do his will by doing in us what is pleasing in his sight. So what's the will of God? To do what is pleasing in his sight. For this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel. This is earlier in Hebrews 8. He's quoting Jeremiah 31, 33. This is the covenant that I will make with those, with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and upon their hearts, and I will write them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And when we say, what is the will of God? We have to understand it is to follow what he has directed us, to be like Christ, to do the will of God, to love others, to love him, to serve, and so on and so forth, that we might receive the promise. The promise is very clear. It's the promise of eternal life in the presence of our Savior. We're guaranteed that. And I say all of this, and, and many times when people preach on suffering and we preach on pain and, and hurting and things like that, it's very tempting to say that we can look at our suffering and look at our pain and say that it's meaningless. That, it, that in the scope of eternity, it doesn't matter. Paul doesn't say that. He says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He knows that suffering is part of God's plan. He knows that he must understand and and endure the same as others. But that's not to say the suffering he went through, and he actually quotes it several times, a few times at least, very specifically, the suffering he endured. It was not meaningless to Paul. Your suffering is not meaningless. Your life is not meaningless. God has his reasons for you going through whatever it is you're going through. And that is so that you may receive the promise. So do not cast away, do not throw away the confidence of yours that you might lose its great reward. And then we go on, it goes to verse 37. He begins to quote from the Old Testament, the the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a beautiful book. In fact, we've gone through it on Wednesday night. It is a a powerful book about a man, a prophet who is suffering. And God takes his complaints. He takes his prayer and he turns it into praise. He takes his worry and turns it into worship. It's, It's a beautiful book to study. And he's paraphrasing here. He says in verse 37, For yet in a very little while he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And I say it's a paraphrase. The actual verse reads, For the vision is yet, to the, uh, is yet for the appointed time. It pants towards its end, and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. Behold, As for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. That last phrase, the righteous will live by faith, that's why why some people believe Paul wrote this because he quotes that elsewhere. He quotes it in Romans, he quotes it in Galatians. This idea that the promise, this great reward, it's going to be a little while in coming. We read that many times we look forward. The very first message of this entire series was joy in our hope. And the return of Christ, what we call the rapture of the church. 
And people might hear that message and they might read passages like this and say, well, he said he's coming in a little while here. He, he's always talking about he's going to come back. It's been 2,000 years. Where is he at? Why hasn't he got back yet? And they may read Revelation twenty two twelve. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Some translations say soon. That's a, a poorer translation in my opinion. He says, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to his work. And, and someone may read that and say, well, see, he's supposed to be back by now, you'd think, right? He's coming quickly. And we might say, well, quoting 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And that would not be wrong, but that would be misunderstanding the idea of quickly. It's not talking about a frame of time. It's a frame of speed. You see, when he comes, the ball gets rolling and things happen pretty quick. In fact, relatively speaking, as we understand Revelation, everything's basically going to be undone within seven years. That's pretty fast, all things considered, right? He's coming quickly. He's coming in the blink of an eye, like a thief in the night. And these things, when they happen, they will happen fast. And that's the point he's making. But the righteous, through all the judgment and all the things that are coming, the righteous will live by faith. Now we go back. If you actually have your Bible and want to turn back to Habakkuk, that's a, like I said, it's a good idea. We're going to spend a little bit of time there this morning. Like I said, Habakkuk is a, is a book where the prophet prays and God answers. And he does so. God answers twice. Habakkuk prays three times. And it begins, this is the oracle which Habakkuk the prophet beheld. How long, O Yahweh, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see wickedness and cause me to look on trouble? In other words, what he's saying is I look around my nation. Now think about this, American. Think about this for a second. I look around my nation. I see degradation. I see sin rampant. I see conflict. I see people who hate each other. I see nationwide division. God, why don't you fix it? Anybody pray that prayer recently? Or am I the only one who watches the news? You see what happens in our, in our libraries? No offense. Some of our libraries, I should stipulate. What's, what some of the parades in town and things like not our town, thankfully, but several of the directions our nation is going. And you look at that as a Christian, as a Bible-believing Christian, and you look at that, you can't say, oh, well, that's good. I'm really happy for those people. No, the temptation is, Lord, why aren't you, why aren't you doing something? Why don't you fix this? That's what, that's what Habakkuk says. And God shows up and God answers. He says, see among the nations and look. Be also astonished, be astounded, because I'm doing something in your days. You would not believe it if it was recounted to you. Now, I've heard Billy Graham use that passage to try and say that it means good things are coming. That's not what that passage means. Now, if you pray that, God knows if you mean good things are coming. Like I said last week, God's pretty smart. He knows what you mean. 
But that is not what that passage is saying. The very next thing he says, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who walks on the breadth of the land to possess dwelling places which are not theirs. In other words, you want me to fix it? Okay, I'm going to fix it. But I'm going to take a nation far worse than yours and I'm going to sweep them in and they're going to take your house, Habakkuk. They're going to take your land, Habakkuk. They're going to have your property. Is that? Are you okay with that? Doesn't matter. It's on its way. My wrath is coming. And Habakkuk, his reply is basically, but God, don't you know, those are bad people. You shouldn't use bad people to judge bad people, God. And God's answer to that is, you want to do my job? That's basically what he says. That's in, in Habakkuk 2. He begins, and he, this is where our passage picks up. It says, for the vision is yet for the appointed time. In other words, it's going to happen. It's coming. It pants towards its end. It will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. This is what Psalm 91 is about, by the way. If you remember when, when COVID happened, there were those who said, we need to read Psalm 91. And it was great. We did because Psalm 91, the first half of it, God says, in my wrath, my righteous one, I will save you from that. He says, it says he covers us with his pinions. He he covers us with his wings as his wrath comes down upon those who are unrighteous all around the righteous. And God's response ends, it says, in verse 20 of chapter 2, he says, But Yahweh is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. In other words, Habakkuk, you're done complaining. What's done is done. What's set in motion will come. And Habakkuk, in that moment, understands. Same thing I said last week, same thing I've already said today. He is God, I am not. He is worthy of worship. He is a sovereign. He is the one in control. And he actually ends the entire book in worship. He says, Yet I will exult in Yahweh. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Yahweh, the Lord, is my strength. And he has set my feet like hind's feet and makes me tread on high places, on my high places. The idea is God is in control. Though I am suffering, though I am in a wicked nation, though that it seems hopeless, he is in control. And I have to trust that he knows what's best because his righteous one, he will spare him. It's why we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, by the way, because we believe God will spare us the wrath and the judgment that's coming in, the trib in what we call the great tribulation. Paul says otherwise, elsewhere in, in Romans 9.33, quotes Isaiah. He says, he who believes in him will not be put to shame. But in those moments, who we are in Christ matters. How we follow him matters. When we're made the public theatrics, when we're shamed, when we're guilted, when we're made to feel less than because we believe in, in a God who loves, how we react matters. Jesus said, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. Church, how we react, how if we cast off our confidence, if we cast off our joy, how we react matters. And the final verse is simply this. He says, 
But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction. And the word destruction, some of you, if you've read the Left Behind series, you're familiar with that word. It's the, the Greek word apoleion. You've heard of Ap- Apollyon, the destroyer. That's one of the, the books of the Left Behind series. It means to be destroyed or made waste. The writer says, if we're in Christ, we're not waste. If we're in Christ, our suffering does matter. It's not wasted. We're not, following, we're not falling into destruction, but we will persevere. We will press on. We will be driven into a greater joy in Christ. And those of the faith, those who have faith to the preserving of the soul, that's the eternal life we have waiting on us in Christ Jesus. And there is joy when our focus is on the end game, when our focus is on the finish line, when we're pursuing him, when we're seeking Christ, when we have our hope in him and we've received salvation and we found joy in the fact that we've repented of our sins and we have received his grace and we are operating in faith and we are understanding and reading his word and we are seeking Christ and we are glorifying him even in our suffering we find joy that's the whole series in a nutshell right there as we suffer we we pursue Christ all the more the truth is many don't make it for it said suffering persecution is the greatest filter of the church and one the church in America desperately needs. Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. It's the same word used here in Hebrews. There are many. If you recount the the parable of the sower, three-fourths of those where the seed is scattered do not make it. They do not grow. They don't put down roots. They don't produce fruit. But in our suffering, if we are in Christ, if indeed we are in Christ, it drives us more towards joy in him. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back this morning. And we're going to close in prayer this morning. If you will stand with me too, I'm going to ask everyone to stand. And here's the thing. Maybe you're here and you're saying,